2017, Barna put out a survey to let us know how American people pray. They titled the survey, Silent and Solo, How the American People Pray. And in the survey, they had many different kinds of questions for people to answer. I've never been asked one of these surveys. I'm just waiting for someone to call or email me for me to participate. I've never been asked, but Barna is actually a credible source. And one of the questions in this survey was, what does your praying life pertain to? In other words, if you're the praying kind of person, like when you pray, what do you say? Do you ask for stuff? Do you thank God? Do you confess? How do you say things? Here was the top six most popular things that the American people prayed. Gratitude and thanksgiving, that's really important. The needs of my family and community, personal guidance and crises, my health and wellness, confession and forgiveness, things I suddenly feel compelled to urge to pray about, safety in my daily tasks or travel. Those were the top six, and let me just say those are all great things to pray for, wonderful things to pray for. Praying is like a child approaching a parent. That's what it, what it looks like for um, one of God's people to approach God in prayer. It's okay to be needy, so to speak, and ask for things that are on your heart. But as I looked at the list and examined the survey, I realized that glorifying God or something related to glorifying God was nowhere on the list. If you can remember the Lord's Prayer, it's our Father in Heaven. And the second line is, hallowed be your name. It's at the beginning for a reason. It, it, signi it signifies importance. This, this is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. So this list is a very good list to pray for. But one of the things that God's people should be regularly praying for is that God would be glorified in your life. In our passage today, we see Jesus starting off in praying. And he's praying that the Father would receive glory. We were created to glorify God. So at Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says this, for by him, God, all things, everything were created, and all things were created through him, through God, and for God. We were created by God for God's glory. When we start in verse 27, where Jesus now my soul is troubled, he's praying, and he says, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus is praying out loud. People are listening. And one of the first things he says is that my soul is troubled. He's troubled. That word troubled there in the original language is serious. It, it signifies to be stirred up, to be unsettled, to cause inward turmoil, a feeling of horror and revulsion. All of us have felt this at one point of our life, and here Jesus is feeling it. It's a similar word used in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 6, verse 3, where the psalmist says, My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Or again in Psalm 42, 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? This is how Jesus is feeling right now. And the reason is because it's the last week of his life. And he knows that just in a couple of days... He's going to be beaten, tortured, so bad that he's unrecognizable and die on the cross in our place and for our sins. This is a similar feeling that he feels in the Garden of Gethsemane 
where Luke tells us that he is such agony, he sweats like drops of blood. The humanity of Jesus is on full display. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And he knows what it's like to feel emotions and feelings. And emotions and feelings are good. We should draw near to God in prayer knowing that he knows what we're feeling like because he's been through it himself. And it says that, Jesus says that for this purpose I have come to this hour. Uh, the word hour has shown itself up several times in the Gospel of John. It doesn't mean 60 minutes. It means like around this time. And if you can remember, there's been several times as we've been going through the Gospel of John where Jesus did a miracle, where he was teaching or preaching, and it said that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were getting jealous of him, and they tried to kill him right then and there. But each time he escaped, because John tells us that his hour had not yet come. So even when they tried to kill Jesus, they couldn't do it because it wasn't God's timing yet. But now the timing has come. And Jesus is starting to feel the weight of it. He's expressing his emotions, being fully human. If you find yourself in a similar season, you shouldn't feel any shame. You shouldn't feel guilt. You shouldn't feel like, oh man, I, I just feel like I can't handle it. It's totally fine and acceptable to feel deeply and have these kind of emotions. And as opposed to ignoring them, what we need to do is process them and, in, and draw near to God in prayer and tell him what's going on. He already knows. You're not going to inform him. It's impossible for him to learn anything. He already knows everything. But one of the ways that he works in your life is to bring trouble, difficulty sometimes, to wake you up, to spur you to draw near to him. And part of this helps you to learn how to be dependent on God. So it's totally good to pray for needs and, Lord, help me get out of this and help me to deal with this annoying coworker and this bad business partner or whatever. It's totally good to pray those things in some sense. But we also have to pray as Jesus prays that God would receive glory in our suffering and our difficulty. Suffering is bad, but sin is worse than suffering. Sometimes we, when we go through hard stuff, we excuse ourselves to sin and do stuff that we shouldn't do. Uh, because we say, oh, look at me, look at my life, it's so hard. And we do stuff we shouldn't, and then it makes stuff even worse. You see this a lot sometimes with political leaders or other kind of leaders, where they're going through a lot of stress or going through a lot of anxiety. Instead of learning a healthy way to process emotions, particularly in the Christian faith, of prayer and counseling and help and that kind of thing. Uh, they start to sort of go off the deep end and they make their lives a wreck. When we suffer or go through hard things, we need to draw near to God in prayer, trusting that he will hear, helping, just putting your needs before him like a child would put their needs before a parent, knowing that he knows what's best, but also so that God will get glory in it. And God's glory is what makes us happy. As John Piper says, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Your satisfaction and God's glory go together. That's why we were created for God, for his glory. I've mentioned the word glory, glorified, several times. It's kind of one of those religious words that's tossed out, that's not really defined that much. It really means to, to praise God, to honor God, to extol him. It, it means to live in such a way that it is clear by the way that you live that God is the most important reality in your life. That who he is and how he's revealed himself in the word shows that that's the most important thing to you. Uh, living for the glory of God means living in such a way that you reflect his character and greatness in all that you do. That, that's what it means to live for the glory of God. Not just a Sunday thing, not just a Wednesday thing, but all week long. 
Surely none of us are perfect and we stumble in many ways. But God has given us strength and help and the word and the church to help us to obey him, to glorify him. This is what Jesus is praying in his suffering. He's praying that God would get glory and God answers that in the next verse. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is one of three times where a voice, God the Father himself from heaven, speaks to Jesus. From, happened at his baptism where we heard God the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And also the transfiguration where Jesus goes up on the mountain with a couple of his disciples, not all of them. Sometimes there's an inner circle. And his clothes was shown like light. His face was like the sun, it said. We hear God speaking, not for Jesus' sake, but for the people around them. To validate Jesus and his ministry. And we don't need to go around looking for a voice in the sky. Sometimes people are asking questions about what should I do? Should I accept this job? Should I marry this person? Should I date this person? Should I move to a different city? And sometimes we can hyper-spiritualize that and look from a voice. We don't, we don't need to look for a voice. We already have God's word. And how he wants us to live revealed in his word. We have God's people. People who are further along than us in life. Who we can ask for advice and help. Right? We don't need to look for a voice. But here in this unique time in church history. We see a voice speaking to Jesus to validate his claim. And people are listening. And you would think, wow. God speaks. Everyone must have come to faith right away. They don't. Look what the crowd says. The crowd says, oh, I wonder if it was an angel. I wonder if it was thunder. All the commentators pointed out that this is showing the spiritual blindness of people towards God. God talks from heaven and they can't even recognize it. This is how hardened their hearts are. This is how ignorant they are of the things of God. They misinterpret it from natural events. It reveals their spiritual blindness. Sometimes people say, this, you know, hey, I don't, I'm not going to be a Christian. I don't want to come to faith in Christ because there's not enough evidence. And that is a, uh, someone says to me, I would be all ears to talk and have several coffee conversations to think through what that means. And someone could be validly saying that's how they feel. We need to respect that. And if that's how you feel, I want to respect how you feel in that moment. Because I understand through trauma or through life or confusion that there could be a lot of questions about faith and Christianity. So I want to make room for saying, I understand that evidence is important. Same time here, what we see is that all over the Gospel of John, Jesus has done all kinds of healings. Turning water into wine, healing a blind man, raising someone from the dead. How many, how many more miracles and signs do people need to see to, to come to faith? For some people, it's, it, it, will be, it will be never enough. It, they, come to, they don't come to Christ not because there's not enough evidence, but because there's... Their hearts, are, their hearts are hardened. Our hearts can be that way, where we can become hardened towards God and sort of deaf to the things of God because we want to live our lives the way we want to do them. And so here God provides yet another evidence, and the people begin not to turn from their sin and believe in him, but to question him. They question him. They ask this. Jesus speaks first. He says, Now is the judgment of this world... Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Ruler of this world, that's Satan. He's talking about the devil, the enemy. He says he's the ruler of this world. That, that doesn't mean in any way that he has more power than God. That would be absurd. He's just 
giving him a, a title. When the Bible talks about the word world, it's not talking about the creation. It's talking about the fallen system and values and people who don't live life in conjunction with God's word. And Jesus says Satan is the head of all of that. That's what Paul says too in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, he says, in their case, the, quote, God of this world, lowercase g, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So that's another reason why some people don't come to faith. Because their eyes are blinded by the enemy himself to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So when Jesus says the ruler of this world, that's who he's talking about. And then he says, I'm going to be lifted up. And my lifting up is going to defeat this so-called ruler. When he says lifted up, he's talking about going to the cross. To die on the cross in our place for our sins and then rise from the dead. When Jesus was on the cross, he was beaten so bad that people couldn't even recognize him. It was in that moment on the cross where someone could have said, an opponent of Christianity, see, look, look how pathetic that is. Look at this Christian faith. Look at your Savior, your Messiah, this 30-something-year-old, single, Jewish, Palestinian, peasant, poor person on the cross, said he was God, but look at him there. And in that moment, one could have thought that the faith was over, that Jesus died, where's this Messiah going? And yet, the ways of God are not the ways of man, and God works through paradoxes and ways that we wouldn't consider, and it was through Christ's suffering where the enemy would be defeated, because three days later, he rose from the dead. And so much was accomplished on the cross when Christ died. So when it seemed like Christianity was over, it was, it was getting started, so to speak. It was the biggest moment of salvation history. Christ rose from the dead showing his victory. And he says, I will draw all people to myself. That doesn't mean that all people will be saved. The Bible is clear that heaven and hell are real. But what Jesus is saying is that he will draw all kinds of people to myself. The, all kinds of, he's saying there's no distinction. He's saying, listen, I've, I'm God. I'm going to die and rise from the dead. I'm going to draw all kinds of people. At this point, in chapter 12 in John's gospel... The good news of Jesus has only reached Jewish people. A Gentile is a non-Jewish person. So if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. And Jesus is saying, after I die and rise from the dead, this good news is not just going to be for Israel and the Jewish people here, but for anyone. Black or white, rich or poor, politically left, politically right, you're American or not, English or not. No matter what kind of lifestyle you live in, poor, no matter how many sins you've committed, no matter how far away you've strayed from God, if you turn from sin and believe in Jesus, that he is the Savior, all your sins are wiped away, past, present, and future. He gives you a perfect righteousness, a right standing with God, and you have a right relationship with him forever. So we look back on the cross a couple thousand years later, but Jesus is sort of looking forward. Because this is going to happen in a couple of days. Saying this good news of me drawing all people to myself is for anyone, anyone who wants to turn from their sin and believe in me. The clouds continue to questions. Questions are good, right? We, questions are good. I, we always welcome questions, especially those who are earnestly seeking to ask questions. But sometimes if you listen to an athlete after a, a game, you can tell the reporter is just trying to get that person to slip up, to say something, to get him in trouble so he can go write an article about it later that week. Sometimes, not always. And sometimes people sort of ask Jesus these kind of questions and they're inquiring and they bring up the, the subject of the Son of Man. Son of Man. This is a very popular theme in Scripture. And they ask, who is this Son of Man? They ask it twice. 
in some major religions, they will see this verse in other verses that refer to Jesus as Son of Man or Son of God, and they will say this. I know this because I've had several conversations with people. They'll say this. See, look, it says right there in the Bible, Jesus is the Son of God, Son of Man. He's not God. He's just a Son of God or a Son of Man. Therefore, he can't be God. Therefore, Christianity can't be true. That is how some people argue. And uh, how can we answer that? Well, as much gentleness and tactfulness as we could muster in a loving way, and sometimes arguing doesn't settle anything because people have their minds fixed on things, but appropriately addressing this text, we can say that Son of Man or Son of God is um, it's a title of Jesus. It's a nickname. That's what it is. Like, for example, Jesus has a lot, like the Great I Am and the Prince of Peace and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and the Wonderful Counselor and King, Messiah, King of the Jews, a Man of Sorrows, Second Adam, Light of the World, Son of David. He has like over 20 plus titles. Son of Man is just one of them. It's no way invalidating his claims to be God over and over again. We've seen in the Gospel of John, one of the big themes is that Jesus is God. And oh, by the way, if you read the rest of the New Testament, it appears on almost every page. Almost every page. So this sort of notion of saying, oh, it says Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Son of Man, therefore he can't be God, is not a valid argument. Like for me, I have a lot of titles. You have a lot of titles as well. I'm a pastor, uh, husband, father, brother, son, neighbor, writer. Imagine someone coming up to me and say, David, you can't be a pastor because you're also a brother. And it was just, just, there's zero logic, zero credibility to that whatsoever. It's like going up to a school teacher and saying, you can't be a teacher, you're also a mom. What? Why can't I be both? I have connections and family and friends and titles and I, I do things. It, this is kind of like when it's the son of man, son of David, is trying to give us a different angle at Jesus and who he is. And so Jesus gets this sort of backhanded compliment or backhanded question rather and he he doesn't really answer it but we can say that the son of man actually has divine language because it actually points to daniel in the book of daniel where the author there writes i saw in the night visions verse 13 in chapter 7 and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and then the rest of the passage says stuff like he's coming on clouds and giving dominion and glory and all people will serve him, and he'll have a kingdom that will never end. There's God language all over that passage. Jesus answers the question, but not really, because he answers it indirectly, like he does a lot of times. He doesn't, he's never sins, but he doesn't always give people what they want right then and there. He gives an indirect answer to this challenging of, are you the son of man? Are you really Messiah? We've seen you do all these miracles. You've been perfect. We still want to question you until we're blue in the face. And Jesus doesn't stoop to the level. Instead, he says, I, I'm the light of the world. Believe in me before it's too late. The light is only going to walk with you so much longer because he's going to die soon and rise from the dead. This concludes Jesus' public ministry. And many people did not believe in him, although he did many, many signs to show his belief. It really brings up a question in our, our ears and our minds. And we ask, you know, why, why is it that after all that Jesus did, that so many people didn't believe in him. Like they saw people rise from the dead right in front of them. And water was turned into wine. That's like everyone's favorite miracle. And 5,000 plus people were fed. 
And a man at the pool of Bethesda was an invalid for almost four decades, and he was healed. People saw this, and they saw perfection, a perfect character on display. They still wouldn't believe. So why is it that even today in our, in our world, where we have seven-plus billion people, and around two billion are Christians, and the rest are not, why is why do some people believe and some people don't? There's a lot of, lot of answers to that. Um, there's, that would be a whole sermon series to do. But here, sticking in our passage, Jesus here quotes him from the book of Isaiah. He, he takes a text from the Old Testament and uses it now. The New Testament is one-third Old Testament. So 30-plus percent of the New Testament is Old Testament scripture quotations. So if someone says the Old Testament doesn't matter today, you can say, oh, no, 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 you like that New Testament. There's Old Testament there too. And Jesus gives the hard truth. This is a hard thing. But he says this, that God himself blinds the eyes and hardens the hearts of people. And somehow this accomplishes his eternal will. That's a hard thing to say. It's what we see right here. It says, therefore, they could not believe. Verse 39. Not that they did not believe, but they could not believe. Then the Isaiah quote comes in where it says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So yes, God is full of love and full of grace and full of mercy, but he's also a God of wrath and righteous anger, and he expresses both. And this quote right here is from the book of Isaiah. And here, you know, the story of Isaiah. He sees a vision. He sees the Lord sitting in heaven, right? So he's engulfed with the majesty and greatness of God. This has been preached at every single missions conference, every single child event sort of thing. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Are you familiar with that passage? Yeah, he says, here I am, send me. But what we don't do is look at the rest of the story. And Isaiah does get sent after experiencing God's majesty but he sees zero fruit in his ministry whatsoever so he goes to preach and no one listens even though he says the right things and god has his back god's empowered him god's given him the words to say and people are hardened and somehow this accomplishes the eternal purposes of god the puritans used to say the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay same God that saves is the same God that condemns. The same God that feels love is the same God that must feel anger. Anyone who doesn't feel an anger any time is not a person of love. Anger must go with love because if you really love someone or something, you'll feel anger. Those things are threatened in God's place. It's his glory. So God has the power to do this. And it says in Romans chapter 9, verse 18, So that he, God, has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he he wills. Either way, it's up to God. This never, ever, ever, ever negates personal responsibility. God's control and human responsibility are always put together in Scripture. They're never at odds. And people are held responsible. We are held responsible to make a real, eternal choice about believing in Jesus. Not just as someone good up there. Not just some, oh yeah, I think he's real. But, but to seriously believe in him as God as Savior, as Lord. And in his commentary on the book of John, D.A. Carson writes about this hard passage. He says that ultimately this is sort of God's judgment for those who have don't, don't have faith in Jesus and ultimately don't want to live with God. They don't want to have God in their lives. 
And then he encourages us that God's control and God's power and how he softens heart and how he hardens heart, it's a, that's meant to encourage us. The fact that God has power and has control should, should give us a source of encouragement, not discouragement. He can do something about family and friends and coworkers who are far from the Lord. A friend of mine called me up recently. He said, David, sorry, I've been a terrible friend to you. I said, what in the world are you talking about? And then he went, and I was like, I don't know what you're saying. And then he went sort of spiel, and he started unpacking it. And essentially, we were, he was in our wedding. It was going to be in our wedding, but he pulled his hernia like the week before, so he couldn't show up. And we were just good Christian friends. We enjoyed fellowship together, read the Bible, talked about theology. Was, he's really interested in God, and we walked with God together. And then, then he sort of fell away for three years. And he lived in sin, didn't touch his Bible. There's all kinds of dust on his Bible, didn't go to church. Uh, he was sort of just saying, I'm angry at you, God, so I'm going to go do my own thing for several years. And so he calls me out of the blue and says he's sort of back being a vibrant follower of Jesus, and he wants to apologize for being a bad friend. I said, Sam, totally cool, brother. I understand you were just processing a lot. You've had a hard childhood. Usually in your mid-20s, things start to hit you, right? Maybe my childhood wasn't perfect into your 30s. You start to think more about life, and he was in that stage. But now, just starting at the beginning of the year, he was telling me about how he read the entire Bible in 90 days, twice. And how he's just ready and about to join a church. And he's really into reading Christian books. And he's, he's back. And he said he's, he's feeling happy and satisfied again. And I asked him what happened. And he said, just said, enough was enough. And finally, he said, God, give me a hunger for you again. And he received an insatiable desire to get back to knowing God again. God softened his heart. Doesn't happen like that every time. Sometimes people fall away and never return. I don't always know why or what's going on. People ask me where they saved in the first place. Oh, I don't know. I'm not God. Only God knows their hearts. Got to pray for people. But this is an example, a clear example of someone who walked away for years and God brought them back in. God has the power on his timing to pursue who he wants to pursue. So if you're here today and your heart has been softened to God, that means essentially just that you're open to hearing about Jesus. You know Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You, this should cause for tremendous thankfulness and rejoicing to God forever. I mean, you might look back on your life and have regrets, and that's normal. Everyone has regrets. You might look forward and have anxieties about oh, the future, what's going to happen to my kids, and so on and so forth. And that, that's normal too. But you have an unshakable faith in God that can cause joy now until all of eternity. And even if everything else goes wrong, this is the right thing that will never be taken away from you because God himself pursued you and softened your heart through a parent, through a pastor, through a youth group leader to give you the eyes to see. He didn't harden your heart. He softened it. So this is a cause for tremendous thankfulness to God forever for pursuing you and giving you eyes to see and a heart to believe that Jesus is God. And you would think that through all this seeing Jesus moving back then, that people there would uh, not take it for granted, that they would have the boldest faith, that they would be the most zealous evangelists in the history of the church, but, but they're not. Verse 42, many, even of the authorities, like leaders in the church, someone like me, like a pastor, leader kind of person, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, other religious leaders, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, lose their position in the, in the church leadership structure. 
And verse 43 gives us the reason. It says this, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's why they didn't want to be bold about their faith. Because they more concerned about what people thought of them and not enough about what God thinks about them. These are leaders for crying out loud. This is, as John MacArthur says, one of the saddest descriptions of spiritual leadership in all of the Bible. Sometimes lay people have more faith and more boldness than leaders or pastors do. That's, that's what we see here. And John is writing to his audience, and there were people back then that wanted to kind of secretly follow Jesus. You know, I want to confess him, but I don't want to be talking about it that much. And, uh, you know, this was meant to rebuke them. This was meant to rebuke them, and it's meant to rebuke us as well. They are only interested in following Jesus and talking about Jesus uh, as long as their life was comfortable, as long as it didn't cost them anything. But if it doesn't cost you anything to follow Jesus, then you're not really following Jesus. It's not that we all have to go overseas and, and sort of seek martyrdom or anything like that. But following Jesus is always costly. And in this situation for these men, it would have cost them influence and pow power and status. And it, it was like those things were more important to them than God and glorifying God. For us, it, it might look a little bit differently. You know, you might have friends from high school, from college that you know, you talk to every once in a while. Friends at work and so forth. Maybe they barely know you're a Christian. Maybe you'd be kind of sort of nervous to talk about your follower of Christ. Maybe you don't want to say something about it. Don't want them to think you're weird or off-putting or they might end the friendship. And being a little bit nervous about doing evangelism, I feel nervous too. I know what that's like. Being a little bit nervous is one thing, but being really, really fearful or really sort of not wanting to feel exposed for your faith, it, it, I ask you, it could be a sense of that you're looking for validation and approval from people, not from God. Desire to be validated and seen and accepted is good, but we can only get that from God himself. It's a vertical receiving. It's not a horizontal thing. It's get our validation, our approval from God. And the more we understand who we are in Christ, the more that our sense of worth comes from him, the more we'll be bold about our faith and lift for the glory of God and not being so fearful of what everyone else around us thinks. These are some of the themes that Jesus picks up on when he says that he's a light, that he had, believing in him means believing in the Father, that he has been come to say things, account of the Father. This ends his public ministry. You know, 2020 has been a hard year, and uh, I know that a lot of people are going to say, sort of at the end of the year, this was the hardest year ever, or that they can remember. But do you know people say that every year? I've had a Facebook account since... High school, I think. You know, I don't get on it that much anymore. I don't send me messages. And stuff. I, don't, I don't always see everything. But at the end of the year, if you get on there, December 30th or December 31st, I think every single year without fail, whether Facebook or different social media, someone says, this was the worst year ever. It happens almost every year without fail. Uh, Jesus says uh, at one point in the Gospels that his generation was twisted and crooked. So did Paul. I've been reading books from... Various authors from 19th century, 1st century, guys that didn't know each other at all. They were writing for different interests. You know what every single author is saying in these books? This is the worst generation ever. Every year, people say, this is the worst year ever. And every generation says, this is the worst generation ever. And then you say, back in my day, we didn't struggle with this, that, and the other. 
So it's like, yeah, you struggle with something else that you don't want to talk about. And then the other generation does it, the next generation, and it's all these back. And everyone's like, everyone is terrible besides me. That's what we all want to say. This is the worst year ever, and this is the worst generation ever. Everyone keeps saying that. And in, in, in America, there's, you know, God never changes, Scripture never changes, Jesus never changes. But how we do ministry sometimes changes. Some of you have been at Bethesda for 70 plus years, 80 years, your whole life. You've seen a few pastors, you've seen some ministry styles change. How the preacher dresses, how he doesn't dress, or what they say, what they do. You know, sometimes it changes. And I think, I don't know when or where, particularly what states or what ministry or what church, but there was this kind of message that, uh, you know, as long as you just went to church on Sunday, everything was fine. That was it. I don't know what generation. I'm not an expert in history. But there was this message of, like, um, sort of believe in Jesus. Don't worry about reading your Bible. Only the pastor could do that. Uh, go to church on Sunday. That was it. It's a Sunday, Wednesday thing. Uh, God, th there was no talk of God's glory and God being the biggest, most important, weighty reality in your life that should affect everything. And unfortunately, what this sort of teaches, I don't know where who heard this, but it teaches that sort of God is an add-on to our lives. When in reality, God should be the most important thing in our lives. We examine our work, our friends, our time, our relationships. True Christian living and true discipleship is saying, how, how can I examine all my life and see what the Bible says about all these things and seek to obey God in every area of my life? It, it's not just a Sunday thing or a Wednesday thing. It's all week long thing. This is what the Apostle Paul was arguing when he wrote the first Corinthians. He's laboring. This is a church where there was so much sin and fracture and division. He's, he's addressing all kinds of issues. And then finally he gets to his conclu conclusive statement. He says this. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's not just a Sunday thing or just a Wednesday thing. It's an all week long thing. And the shorter catechism in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the first question says this. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. That answers the big questions of life. Like why am I here? Why did God create me? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father we want to glorify you. We don't want this to be just a Sunday thing, just a small group thing, just a once a week thing. We, we want to look at every second and how we can glorify you. Give us a hunger for you, Lord God. Protect us from the evil one who will try to make us busy with recreational things to keep us from you. Lord, help us to get serious about your glory. Give us grace along the way, Lord. All of us, all of us are a work in progress. We need a lot of grace. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.